Amen. Hey, Maple Grove, I have, have some good news for you. God is real. The Bible is true. Uh, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And in him you have hope and peace and life and forgiveness. God loves you. God likes you. You matter to him. Right now, this very moment, no matter if you're doing good, if you're not doing so good right now, God loves you where you are right now, no matter what you think. Amen? Amen. It's true. We could go home, right? But I'm not going to let you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to stay a little longer. Hey, hey check this out. Uh, 2,000 years ago, David, a king, a, a warrior, a, a worshiper, a man, a sinner, a giant slayer, a man who chased after the heart of God wrote these words about the, the word of God in, in Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, yeah, there's more, he says, in addition, your servant is warned by them, and there is great reward in keeping them. I would say David's a little bit passionate about the Word of God. And, and, and Paul said the following in the final letter that he wrote from a prison cell and waiting for his sentence of death to be carried out. And he says this, do your best, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Do your best to present yourself to God, not to other people, right? They don't matter. We live our lives for an audience of one. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Father, what an honor and a privilege to come into the presence of the one who breathes out stars, and who makes billions of failures disappear through his love and the blood of his son. And God, your word is so powerful and so true, so renewing and refreshing. And, and God, I, I pray that right now that all of us will lean in to your alive and active word, open our hearts and minds. And God, I ask for your help. Help me to do justice, to honor your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're in this series about understanding the Bible and we've talked about some, some pretty awesome and some pretty significant things about the Bible, about, about this book, how, how this book is the 
most amazing book in all of human history, right? How, how this book is unique. It's in, a, it's in a class of its own. How this book is accurate historically. It's accurate in its text. How this book is supernatural. It, it knows some stuff that only God can know. And it, it knows future events through fulfilled prophecy, And we talked about how this book is really, it's just like one story about the coming of Christ. The Old Testament, Christ is coming. The Gospels, guess what? He's here. And the rest of the Bible, the period we're living in, is that Christ is coming again. And and we talked about the canon one week, about about how, how this book contains everything that God wants us to have. There's not a book missing, and there's no book in here that should not be in here. And we spent some time talking about The transmission of the text, how we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, how the Bible was copied and copied and copied and copied a lot, copied by different people in different places throughout the centuries. And because there's so many copies, there there are some differences between them, but 90% of those differences are just things like spelling Word order and the movable new, if you remember, remember what that was. And, and an amazing God thing is, when you think about it, 25,000 manuscripts over the centuries, when you think about it, when you know that not one of the differences touches, comes close to touching an area of our faith. That is so God. As God preserving. God breathed this book, and God has preserved the text so we can be confident that it's trustworthy, so that we're confident that it's both from God and, and, and that it's true, and that, my brothers and sisters, should make us very happy and very secure. And, and last week, we began to talk about uh, the topic of hermeneutics, uh, the science and art of, of studying the Bible uh, the word comes from a Greek word that simply means to explain or to interpret. And the noun form of that is where the Greek god Hermes got its name. Hermes was the messenger god. And whenever Zeus or some other deity had a message to get to mankind, you know, he would ring up Hermes. And Hermes, who had winged feet, would take the message down to people. And, and then what we did last week, we wrapped up, you know, um, talking about some reasons that should motivate you to read God's word. That should motivate you to to really lean in this week and the next few weeks as we talk about how to properly understand the Bible, how to present ourselves to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Some reasons why, why you should want to lean in. Those reasons were valid last week, they're valid today, and they've been valid for centuries. Why should you study and read the Bible? Why should you do your best to handle it correctly, number one? Because the Bible is the Word of God, right? It's His Word. Number two, the Bible nourishes us spiritually. Here's the deal. You will not grow up in your salvation unless you read and study the Bible, period. It nourishes us spiritually. It's our spiritual food, the Bible encourages us to see ourselves as we really are. You know, we really, we really need this mirror that we can look in to see who we are and where we are so God can get us to where we need to be. Uh, the Bible also exposes false teaching. And there's a lot of false teaching out there, right? We're not to believe everybody who speaks about God's word because it may or may not be true. 
very dangerous. And, and the, the danger of following false teaching, according to 2 Peter, is that following false teaching is very dangerous and it can lead to our destruction and falling from our secure position, right? So you should want to know, right? You should read this book because I, I don't want to be led astray, right? I don't want my GPS to tell me to take a left when I should take a right and I, and I wound up in another state rather than the state I want to be in. The Bible empowers us to resist temptation. How did Jesus resist, resist temptation? By what? By the word of God. We memorize scripture. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God, there's only one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You know, and how can you and I expect to stand up against the evil one if we have never stabbed his attacks with the sword, right? If we've never stabbed those attacks, we're not going to be able to stand up. Another reason you should read the Bible is because the Bible brings transformation. The Bible and the Holy Spirit working together will help you to become that new creation, the Bible is a source of comfort and hope. It's another reason that you should read the Bible. And I think we could probably spend the rest of the day coming up here and people sharing how this book, in a dark and desperate time, lifted them up, gave them hope when they had no hope, helped them to keep on going when they felt like giving up. And this book is a foundation for a storm-weathering life, this world it's tough, it's hard, it's difficult. Sometimes things just suck, right? It's hard. The storms will come, the winds will blow. But, but if we read this book and live this book, Jesus promises us that our house will stand. And the final reason was that the Bible has a very important purpose. <laughs> the Bible reveals God to us. What is God like? All right. He's a God who has a deep love for us, doesn't he? We get that from the Bible, right? Creation doesn't, tells us he's great and powerful, but creation doesn't say that he's a God that would love us like that, that his love for us is that deep, that he would send his only son to pay for our sins. And the Bible also reveals the way of salvation. How do we get right with God, right? We offended him. He's the one who tells us how to get right with him. And the Bible also reveals to us and empowers us, equips us to live the life that God created us to live. I don't know about you, but for me, those are some really good reasons that I should be motivated to read and study and understand the Bible. And we could add to those reasons what David said in Psalm 19, right? I mean, David said that the Word of God renews our lives, that it's trustworthy, that it makes the inexperienced, the foolish, not so smart, makes them wise, that it makes our heart glad and it makes our eyes light up, that, that the Bible is pure and endures forever, that it's reliable and, and, it's, and it's altogether righteous, that the Bible is more desirable, that God's word is more desirable than gold, and that God's word is sweeter than honey, and that God's word will warn us of danger, and when we follow it, there's great reward for us. And again, because of these reasons, you should want to, you should be motivated to, you should be compelled to read and understand the Bible. And here, here, here's the truth that if you don't read and understand the word, you will not handle it correctly. You will have every reason to be ashamed before God, and you will not experience all the power and all the benefits of this book. Get it? 
good. Check out this quote from a guy named Robert Stein in his book, Playing by the Rules, a basic guide to interpreting the Bible. The importance of interpreting the Bible correctly cannot be overemphasized. The claim that the Bible is inspired and that it is God's revelation to humanity is ultimately of little value without some understanding of how that divine revelation should be interpreted. When we describe the Bible as infallible or without error, those terms are meaningless if we do not know how to interpret it. And here's the deal. If you read the Bible, you're already interpreting it. I mean, you, you already are practicing hermeneutics. You see, we, we can't read the Bible without starting to ask the question, hey, hey, what does that mean? So the issue is not whether or not we have a, a basic interpreting framework, because we all do. No, the issue is whether or not our framework is clear or unclear, adequate or inadequate, correct or incorrect. I, I mean, it, it's... Is our framework, is your framework for understanding the Bible leading you closer to the truth of God's word or is it leading you further away from the truth of God's word? Get it? Good. This is so important. And shame on me, like so much in the series, I've never taught on this on a Sunday morning before. Well, that's okay now. We're doing it. Now, let's start unpacking some hermeneutical principles for understanding the Bible. Now, this morning, we're, we're going we're gonna to unpack two, you know, important, essential, foundational, need to be there, or nothing's going to be understood correctly, principles for understanding the Bible in the conversation that I'm calling take aim and always respect the king. Now, understand in all communication, three different components are necessary. In fact, if any of these components are missing or lacking, communication is impossible or it's hindered. And those three components are, as you see in this diagram, author, text, and interpreter. Now, we could say those other ways. We could say sender, message, and receiver, the speaker, the speech, the listener, the preacher, the sermon, and you, right? And the truth is, we spend much of our lives interpreting the various communications that's coming our way from our spouses, from our parents, our friends, from teachers, um, verbal communication, nonverbal communication. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. When I was in Ireland at a tent revival on a Saturday night, uh, right below the, uh, the, the Mourn Mountains, and when the song leader said, let's stand, I thought that meant, let's stand right now. And I stood, and our group stood, and 500 people didn't stand. <laughs> See, in that culture, until he does this, you don't stand. I thought, hey, let's stand. Okay. And we're like, what do we do? Well, I guess we keep standing, right? You know, something didn't connect. And... But, but communication is simply more than just an author, text, and interpreter because, you know, the, the auth, all authors have both emotions and experiences. And what that means is that if we're to understand what they're saying, we got to know something about their background, right? For example, uh, let, let's say you're about to hear someone speak on forgiveness. Would it make a difference in how you listen if you knew that that person had been 
abused as a child sexually for five years or had survived a Nazi prison camp? Would you listen differently? Bottom line, if we're truly to understand the author's words, we must know something of the author's experience and emotions. And not only does the author, right, come to the text with experience and emotions, so do we, right? Cool question. With the way that a person who has just suffered a, a, a major loss, right, maybe a, a spouse, a child, a parent has died, or they've just been diagnosed with cancer, would the way that person reads and hears Job be different than the person who just got a job promotion, has a great marriage, and just won the Powerball lottery, right? Would they, would they read Job a little bit differently? And, and would a divorcee, you know, would they read honor your husband different than a six-year-old boy, a, a pastor, or someone who's celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary? Right, right, so, you know, we have the, we have the, you know, we, we have the author, the text, and the interpreter, but we have emotions and experience also affecting how we hear. And, and, then, and then all communication is filtered through language, which is an imperfect science and art with several obstacles in the way. Number one, written texts lose the advantage of voice, of vocal inflection. Have you ever got in trouble as a child or as a husband probably? Not because of the words you said, but because how you said it, right? Great, your mom's coming to visit this weekend. Great, your mom's coming to visit this weekend, right? Same words, right? For example, in, in John 14, 1, the NIV has Jesus saying, trust in God, trust also in me. And both are interpreted as commands. But what if we read the first phrase as a simple statement? You trust in God, you should also trust in me. Or what if we read the first statement as a, Rhetorical question, right? Like, oh, you trust in God, obviously. Well, then you should trust me also. And, and both of these readings are acceptable. And, and they make a great deal of sense concerning Jesus is about to say, if you had seen me, you had seen the Father. Well, the problem is we can only be sure if we heard the vocal inflection, which we cannot. And, and note that, all early manuscripts, were, they were in all caps with no punctuation, all right? All caps and no punctuation. Obstacle number two is transmission, right? It, well, you, you know this for sure because a lot of you here on Sundays. Um, nobody is, perfectly clear, is a perfectly clear communicator, right? <laughs> right? And, and you guys get to experience that every week. Right? I, I prove that out. Uh, sometimes stuff just comes out the wrong way. Um, here are a few announcements from an actual church paper. Uh, for those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. <laughs> I really like this one. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, was speaking tonight at Calvary Methodist Church. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. <laughs> now that's a serious belch, I'm telling you, right? And, and, and so... Bottom line, we all misspeak at times, so we should be in, we should in turn be courteous listeners and trying to figure out, hey, what are they really trying to say? 
Obstacle number three, when translating from one language to another, sometimes it's difficult to capture the meaning of a phrase. Like when, when Mary tells Jesus there's no wine, right? His first miracle. The little Greek reads this way, what to me and to you, woman? That's what it says. What to me and to you, woman? Now, most translate it, dear woman, what does that have to do with me, right? And, 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 but sometimes phrases are hard to translate, and they don't mean the same thing. I can't go into it, but we said some phrases in, in Ireland that we found out that, that you don't want to say that. <laughs> That's like a really bad thing in Ireland. That was really terrible. Don't ever say that again, right? And to us, it was something simple. Ask someone from Ireland. I'm not going to say it. Um, next, in between the interpreter and the text is our own hermeneutical lens. It's the way we see and filter the Bible. Uh, some see the Bible as a history book, and so they find historical data, right? Uh, some find it, see the Bible as a storybook, and, and they come away with helpful moral teachings and lessons. Some see it as an ethics textbook, and they come away with rules and doctrine. And what I'm trying to say is that the hermeneutical lens you wear when you approach the Bible will largely determine what you see in it. If you want to see Jesus as a middle-class Republican, you can find him in there, right? If you want to see him as a middle-class, left-leaning Democrat, you can find him there. If you want to find reasons to criticize God's actions as unjust, you can find it there. And not only do we have our own hermeneutical lens that separates us from the text, but so does hermeneutical distance. Right? I mean, we are separated by our text by geography, right? We live in a totally different place, totally different culture, right? It's not like ours. A totally, a totally different time totally different language, a different religion. Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? He was what? He was a Jew. I mean, so, so he, he refrained from pork. He wore a prayer shawl. He worshiped on Saturdays. And so what I'm saying is that, yeah, yeah language is a convergence of an author and interpreter on a text. It's simple as that, but yet it's also complicated because both the author and reader have their own emotions and experiences that may hinder understanding. All communication is filtered through language, which, as we have seen, there's some obstacles to overcome. We all have a hermeneutical lens. And often what we are looking for determines what we find. And finally, we are separated from the text by time, language, culture, geography, and religion. And we add all that up, we might begin to have a pessimistic view that we're never going to understand anything. Yet the reality is we do understand each other. I mean, mothers tell their children to clean their room and they get it. Now whether they clean it or not, that's determined by other factors. Men and women actually get married and have families, crossing the male-female divide, which is perhaps the most mystifying divide of all human communication, right? I mean, it is crazy. We, we don't think alike, right? You guys, remember you're dating and you, you said, hey, 
where do you want to go to eat? And they say, I don't care. Do they really mean that? No. What they mean is, start making guesses. (laughs) And when you get the right one, I'll let you know. Because they really do care. But simply put, language works. Why? Because despite all the difficulties inherent in language, we are somehow able to listen and understand each other. Perfectly, no. But close enough to buy and sell and make appointments and express feelings and resolve conflicts and misunderstandings and describe events and reach and teach and learn new things and even tell a joke and people get it. Bottom line, we can come within an understanding of the author. And again, think about it. The fact that some of you come in here in this room each week and walk away with some understanding of what I said is proof that communication can work if we work at it. Which brings us to the principle of aim. The principle of the author's intended meaning. Understand, the aim, the meaning the author intended must be our aim in understanding the Bible. See, it's not about what you think about the text, what it means to you. It's not about what you see in the words. Instead, it's about what the author meant when he wrote those words. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Let me illustrate. Uh, question. What do you see? First thing you see there. Go, call it, shout it out. Okay. It could be a duck or I see a rabbit, right? Okay. Here, here's the next picture. Shout out what you see. First thing you see, go. Okay. Yep. Old lady, young lady, right? So what did you see first? These things. See what you see first. If you've never seen these. Here. What do you see here? Next one. An old man or a cowboy, right? See, Mike sees the cowboy right away. All right, next one. What do you see? Okay, so, so, so the truth is that we can look at the same thing, right? We can look at the same drawing and we can see something, we can see something different. We can see something that's not the same thing. And I want to show you something real quick. Hold on. It's going to happen, believe it or not. And how how would we know what it actually was? You would ask the author, right? What were you intending to draw? It was kind of like this great debate that went on in our country for a while. Laurel. 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 Okay, what did you hear? I heard Yanny. More, 52% of the world heard Laurel. The rest heard Yanny. Actually, it was Laurel. The guy intended to be Laurel, but he, he, he overlaid it with high frequency to kind of mess people up, right? But it was Laurel. And the point is, when we look at a passage in the Bible, our goal is to find out the author's intended meaning. What did Peter mean? What did Paul mean? I mean, if I write a note to my wife, it means what I intended it to mean. Unfortunately, people sometimes approach the Bible the wrong way. I mean, have you ever sat in a Bible study, right? You're sitting around a circle, 
and, and the leader reads the passage. So, Jeff, what does that passage mean to you? Bob, what does that passage mean to you? <clears throat> Judy, what does that passage mean to you? <clears throat> and no one says the same thing. And no one maybe even came close to what the passage was even saying. See, that's not the right question to ask, and it's definitely not the first question to ask. Instead, the first question needs to be, what did the author intend to say when he wrote the passage? See, certain things that we don't have the right to simply interpret what they mean to us, like military orders or a summons to court or a traffic ticket or the answer to a math problem, or a written assignment from a boss or teacher, or, oh, I thought showing up to work on time just meant get there whenever you could, right? We don't get to interpret those things personally. So why do we think we have the right to make the Bible mean whatever is convenient, comfortable, or culturally acceptable at the time? And let me be clear, we do not have that right. We all need to take the interpreter's pledge. I promise to seek the aim, the whole of the aim, and nothing but the aim, so please help me God, because it's tough to figure out, right? Now, you'll be thinking, is there really only one aim? I mean, can a passage mean different things to different people? Understand that there's a difference between meaning and application, all right? Meaning is singular, right? And it's tied to the text. There is one meaning, but application, you know, how we live out that text is multifaceted and it's, it's varied. In other words, you know, how your parents, how your friends, how your wife, how your husband, how your kids, how someone living on the other side of the world lives out a particular passage can and often is different. I mean, think of all the ways that we could live out and apply the command to love our neighbor or the command to show compassion, right? I mean, there are countless ways that each of us could apply those things. But when we're talking about the meaning of a passage, the author really does have one thing in mind. How do we know? How do we know there's only one aim? Number one reason is God's the source of the Bible, Right? Ultimately, even though human writers, at the end of the day, God guided the process, and God is not schizophrenic. God does not change. Therefore, we can be confident that what he says is consistent. Another reason we can know that there's one aim is because the Bible says that we can understand it. Paul writes, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. 2 Corinthians 1.13. In Ephesians 3, 4, and reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. You see, the beauty of the Bible is its simplicity. In fact, God chose Koine Greek, which was the, the Greek of the common man. You know, it, it, was what, it was what the shopkeepers and fishermen and shepherds, is what they spoke on the streets which says something to God's desire to speak to us in a way that we can understand. Another reason we can know there's one aim is because the Bible tells us to hold on. Hold on to sound teaching. Paul tells Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. But, but how can we hold on to something that's, that's unstable and, and unknowable? 
I mean, if the Bible means many things to different people, then holding on to sound teaching is like trying to nail jello to a tree, right? It's just not going to work. We're also commanded to rebuke those who disobey. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and corrects us when we're wrong, and teaches us to do what is right. But, but how can we correct someone if there are no rules or commands that they're supposed to follow? They can say, well, you know, that may mean that to you, but to me, it means this. Well, no, it It means what God says. We're also told to have one mind. Be one in thought and mind. And how can we do that if the Bible means different things to different people? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in thought and mind. And finally, a single aim is a necessity of human language. I mean, just think how chaotic our world would be if real estate contracts, tax codes, mortgage loans, marriage vows, traffic and criminal laws, sexual morality, college course requirements, rental agreements could all be interpreted personally, right? (laughs) Hey, you know, paying your rent on time may mean on time to you, but paying my rent on time means, hey, any time within that month, right, is okay. So why are you giving me a, a late payment? Bottom line, single meaning of the author is an obvious and indispensable characteristic of human language. I'm not saying we get it perfectly or that we need it in order to survive, but as human beings living in social groups, if we cannot understand each other, civilization as we know it is over, right? In some places it is, right? Can we just admit our world's kind of gone crazy? It's not just Yanny and Laurel, right? It's not just I see a duck, you see a rabbit. Man, it's people protesting and like hating on each other, right? You know, well, to me, tolerance means being tolerant, but to me, tolerant means I get to beat up on you because you don't agree with... It's got absolutely insane in our world because people think they can interpret what is right, what is wrong, how you treat people, what is freedom of speech. It's just, it's gone all upside down. Okay, so if our aim, if aim must be our aim, how do we get there? I'm just gonna let you know, if you're taking notes, I've already decided that the second principle we're gonna start next week. Okay, because this is so important. So how do we get to it? One, by recognizing that God spoke to people in a language that he created. Like, like God is smart, right? Omniscient, right? I learned that word in college so I can sound like my IQ is not as low as it is, right? You know, God knows how our brain works and he used Natural human language to communicate the ideas necessary for us to have a relationship with him, right? And, and, and sure, God spoke on our terms in a way we can understand, and, and he's pretty good at it. And if you believe that, that God created the world, and that's a pretty good bet, 
And if you believe that, that God loves the world he created, another pretty safe bet. And if you believe that God desires to communicate that love to the people he created, and then the question of competency and communication rests more on God than on us. Question, could God create humanity with the ability to understand the divine message? I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. And furthermore, human, ma- human language works every day. It has since the dawn of prehistoric humanity. And, and, and I mean, the fact that human beings live in communities, send text messages, listen to the radio, tell stories, write books, is fairly convincing evidence that this human ability of language functions substantially well. Get it? Okay, good. How do we get to the aim? So, so hey, 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 you know what? I recognize, hey, God wrote language. It's, going, it, it's meant to work if I work at it, right? Another thing is to get to the author's intended meaning, we have to remove the hermeneutical distance, right? You know, this barrier. Like I said earlier, that, that we're separated, right, by, by geography, by language, by time, by culture, by religion. But if National Geographic, right, can take you to exotic places, and the History Channel can kind of take you back in time, why can't Bible scholars provide resources that can do the same thing? The fact is, they can, they have, and they do. Uh, don't speak Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. You can grab an English Bible and read it in your own language. You, you can grab, you, you've never been to the Middle East, and you can grab a Bible atlas, right? You don't understand certain terms in the Bible, certain feasts and festivals and all these things. You, you, can, you, you can use a Bible encyclopedia. And, and, and what I put on this table, I, I put a bunch of these books I, I pulled them from my office, Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, you know, uh, um, a concordance, all these great things that show you all this stuff in the Bible. And also, here's a sheet here that you don't have to buy a book. There's a piece of paper up on that table, you know, that a real smart guy named Mark Moore from Ozark Christian College, you know, put together that here's all these online resources, the Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias. You know, one of the best resources is website listener, blueletterbible.com. I love it. I used this this morning, right? You know, because that do your best, you know, I wanted to look that up. You know, it's actually one word. You know, it can be strive to study, great effort. But it's one word that's translated do your best. It's one word in Greek, you know. And I just go blueletter.com. I put in the Bible verse. I click on, it shows me the Greek. I can click a button and it shows me, here's the definition of that word. You know, also on this sheet, you'll, you'll see written at the bottom in my very neat handwriting, and you'll see starred there, you know, Mark Moore has a, a class on interpreting the Bible. It's two semesters of a college class right there. You can listen to it online. You can download his notebook. Down here, I have listed Dr. Roger Chambers, who I feel is a super brilliant dude, you know, um, Aaron Chambers' dad, he's no longer with us, but his class on hermeneutics, the whole thing. Download the syllabus. I'm, I'm actually taking the class right now. Listen to it again. You can listen to it, right? So these tools are available, right? So we, we can bridge the language barrier, the culture barrier, right? Yeah, we can bridge all these barriers and begin to shrink that 
distance. And again, on that white table are some of the books and, and one of the sheets that you can grab. Now, how do we get to the aim? You know, by re removing our pre-understandings, right? And, and we got to be intentional about that, right? You know, like, there's something, when you come to the Bible, there's something called exegesis. Another word they teach us so we sound smarter than we really are, right? Exodus, right, out of, right? Exegesis, where you read the Bible and you take what's out of it, right? Oh, here's what it's saying. Eisegesis is when you read into it, right? So you got to now say, you know, every one of us has some pre-understandings, right? Things we believe or things we want to believe, right? It's like, hey, I've always believed this. I like to believe this. It makes me very comfortable. Yeah, it makes me very comfortable that, to say that, hey, you know what? I don't have to go to a church building to worship God. I can worship God on the golf course in between tees, right? You know, you know and the church doesn't, isn't that that important. Okay, but did you, did you get that from the Bible? See, I, I think if church is something Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 5, bled and died for, I think if it mattered that much to Jesus, it should matter that much to us, right? And so we have all these pre-understandings. Well, I think this is what women should do, men should do. I think this is right sexually, this, whatever, right? You know, we got to say, hey, I have some pre-understandings and say, God, help me to come to this as much as a blank slate as possible. And it's hard to do, right? You know, to say, God, I, I want to get what you have in here. You know, I, I want to find out what did Paul mean when he said this, when he said that, when he said that. And, and uh, you know, I hope you're encouraged to read the Bible. You know, and, and I, I can't do the next part. I can't tell you about the king, but I can tell you who the king is. See, when, when it comes to Bible study, right, there's one king. And you know who that king is? Context. Context is king. Context is king. Context is king. And, and, and we do a lot of harm. We make more interpreting errors when we take a verse out of its context. We just pull a verse out and we say it means something that it doesn't mean and never meant to begin with, right? If you've ever been taken out of context, right? Anybody ever been taken out of context? You ever taken something out of context, right? You know, it, it, it's not a good thing. Context is king. And context is simply, simply like, here's the verse and like, what's around, what was said before, right? Because that like matters. You know, there's a proverb that says, you know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I, I could say the Bible says there is no God, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, but that's, there's more than just those words, right? There's a context, there's, there's a sentence, there's a paragraph, right? And so next week, we're going to talk about the king a little bit, and, and I'm going to talk about, you know, what I think are three passages that are abused the most um, when it comes to context, you know? Again, context is, is absolutely essential. And I'm going to close by reading this passage of Scripture. Because as you and I get serious and say, you know what? I'm going to get serious about the Bible because, you know what? I, I want to be able to res resist temptation. I, I, I want a storm-weathering life. This is from God. I want to see who I really am so I can become who God wants me to be. You know, and I want to find what the Bible really says. You know, what did Peter mean? What did Paul mean? What did Jesus mean when he says? Then we can be confident that 
if you go to the final slides and verses back there, my slide people who are awesome, because I would not want to do slides for me. Um, the, the, the very last passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, because this is what's going to happen, right? As you get serious about reading and understanding the Bible, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. And I love this. You will go out in joy. I, I guarantee you, the more you read and understand the Bible, the more joy you will have in your life. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. For this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Brothers and sisters, do your best to present yourselves, not to me, not to anybody else, but to God, as a workman approved, who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth, because that word truth is where we find life. And again, next week, we're going to talk about the king, context, and a few other things. Um, would you guys stand and pray with me? Father, um, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the men and women throughout the centuries, given their time and some even their blood, so that we could have the Bible so that we could have the Bible and the language we could understand. Thank you for preserving those words, God. And when we read it, we know it's from you. And God, I pray for that person who's struggling today with a sin that's, that's really gotten the best of them, God. I pray they'll realize that the Bible can help them to resist and overcome that temptation. And I pray for that person in this room, God, who it's finding life difficult and hard. Nothing seems to be going right. Storms everywhere. A lot of heartache and sorrow that they realize that in your word they will find hope and comfort and peace. I pray for that believer, God, in this room who has been doing this for a long time and when they're honest with themselves, they don't feel they made a lot of progress in this journey, that they haven't grown up as much they should. Help them to know, God, that the way to grow up in their salvation is to feed, God, to feed on your word. And God, I pray that as we read your word, you reveal more of yourself to us, that we'll see you for who you are, this God who spoke billions of galaxies into existence. And God, God I pray that as we read your word that we'll see how we can be right with you, how we can live right with you, and we can see the life that you empowered us to live through your Holy Spirit. God, may we be a church that, like David, just is passionately in love with your word. May we see your word as something that is more precious than a job promotion, more precious than a new house, God, more precious than, than the stock market going up, God. And may it be sweeter 
than a flow's filet at Outback, Lord God. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.